If a man die, shall he live? Great questions in life help us prioritize things in our lives. From where did I come? Why am I here? Where am I going? Are three of the greatest questions that man could ever ask. But tonight, as we center our minds on the question before us, if a man die, shall he live? If time permits, I'd like to look at this from five standpoints. In the first place tonight, I'd like for us to look at the question in context. When I look at the 14th chapter of the book of Job, And I began to analyze the contents of that chapter. I realized the first six verses become, as it were, a declaration of man's short life and then his death. He's not going to be here very long at all. In verses 7 through 12, we have the illustration of man's death being final in contrast to a budding stump that may bring forth a shoot that will live again. In verses 13 to 17, in which our question is found tonight, we have the anticipation of what it would be like if Job could be hid in the grave until what he believed to be the wrath of Jehovah had passed him by, and then he could be restored to his former relationship with Jehovah. You see, Job's doubt is really spurred, one writer said, by our prayer that will not let God go. And it undermines a negative certainty to prepare for an affirmative faith. And here's Job hanging on. And Job probably here is contemplating if he could just be hid in the grave for a while, He could be returned to earth in that former relationship that he enjoyed before all those calamities came upon him and before he began to suffer as he's suffering now. And then in verses 18 to 22, we have the realization of the facts of his suffering. And I believe as we look at that, we will be able to analyze this chapter and then look at our question in view of the context. You see, in this chapter, you basically, and with this question, you have an answer to the question. There is no word in the original Hebrew to be translated again. And in your translation, very likely it's in italics, and when it's there, it signals that to you. There's no word in the original to translate there. And so really the question is, if a man die, shall he live? Now, as Job contemplates that, there are some things he did not know. For example, he had not heard the statement of Jesus in John 11:25 when he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Job didn't know that. Job did not have Paul's knowledge in Romans 8:18 8, when Paul said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. As Job looks at the situation, he did not know that. 
And Job did not have the full knowledge of death and the resurrection and the afterlife that you and I now have because we have the entirety of the revelation of God and we're able to put the picture together. So Job is asking this question without those things that others have had when they began to look at the idea of a man die, shall he live? One writer said when he raises the question in the context here, it shows that he really did not see or know anything. Therefore, as far as Job is concerned, there's darkness as he begins to think about this question, if a man die, shall he live? And really, when you become to look at it, there are so many things he didn't know that would have helped him. But what did he know? Job's thought is that he will die before he has an opportunity to show God that he is really not guilty of the things his friends will and have accused him of being guilty of. And therefore he is not in sin and he shouldn't be separated from God. And he should not be suffering as he is suffering now. And his idea is, I'm going to die before I ever have time to prove my innocency. And you have here a sudden transition in his thought, he had unconsciously worked himself up almost to the belief that man might live again on the earth. He'd asked to be hid somewhere, even in Sheol, even in the grave, until the wrath of God should pass him by. And then he checks himself. It cannot be, he says, that man will live again on the earth. This hope is visionary. This hope is vain. And I will endure what is appointed for me until some change shall come. Whatever that change is, I do not know. And Job's answer, in the context of this question, shall a man live, is no. Man will not live again once he dies. On this earth. And I believe as you begin to look at the question in context, that's where you are. In the second place tonight, let's look at the question in view of confusion. You see, science answers the question if a man dies, shall he live? with a hypothesis. Science begins to look at this with a tentative assumption made in order to draw out and to test logical or empirical observations. And when science looks at it with the hypothesis, the hypothesis comes out, he may live again. Philosophy answers, he hopes to live again. It's interesting that in 400 B.C., Socrates drank poison hemlock and lay down to die. His friends asked, shall we live again? The dying philosopher replied, I hope so, but no man can know. One writer said that philosophical skepticism usually undermines in a negative way the acceptance of positive dogma. What becomes of this river of life, one asked says skepticism sadly, the clergyman, the undertaker, 
and the sexton, and to us that would be the grave digger, sees the last of it in the sand. So philosophy says when you look at man's life, the clergyman who preached the funeral, the undertaker who takes care of the funeral, and the grave digger who solidifies the burial are the only folks who see the end of this existence on earth. Ethics answers he ought to live again. And when you begin to look at that question from the standpoint of science and philosophy and ethics, you're in a state of confusion. Is he going to live again? Well, he may. Is he going to live again? Well, I hope he will. Is he going to live again? Well, he ought to live again. But you never come away with any kind of a definitive answer. From Job's immediate standpoint, the answer is no. From science and philosophy and ethics, the answer is, I really can't give you a definitive answer. So in the third place tonight, let's look at this question in view of certainty. Man will die. Now that's certain. Some of you in this assembly tonight are old enough to remember the old Westinghouse ads that said you can be sure if it's Westinghouse. Well, one of the things of which tonight you can be sure is man will die. And it's amazing how preoccupied with death the Egyptians were. As you begin to go back and look at the Egyptian history, it was the central theme of their religion. And as soon as a Pharaoh ascended to the throne, he started planning his tomb. In fact, the oldest building in the world, the colossal pyramids in Gaza, are monuments to the poignant power of death in the human consciousness of the Egyptians. A broken-hearted mother approached a man who was known for his wisdom, and she said to him, Why did I lose my son? And the sage said, I will give you your son back. If you as a mother who is grieving will bring me a handful of seed from one house that has not been touched with grief, her mission failed. Man will die. Every house, if the world stands, will be touched with grief. In fact, the Old Testament affirms that man will die. Let's just take our Bibles tonight, and we could talk about a lot of things, but let's just look in the book of Job and look at the affirmation that man will die. In fact, right here in this chapter, verses 1 and 2, I'm reading from the American Standard Translation. Man that is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. Drop down to verse 5. Seeing his days are determined, the number of his months is with thee, and thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. Drop down to verse 10. But man dieth and is laid low. Yea, man giveth up the ghost. And where is he? 
The waters fail from the sea, and the river wasteth and drieth up. So man lieth down and riseth not, till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake, nor be roused out of their sleep. Turn over to the book of Job, chapter 4, and look at verse 19 beginning. How much more them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. Betwixt morning and evening they are destroyed. They perish forever without any regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? They die, and that without wisdom. Turn over to Job chapter 30. Look at verse 23. For I know that thou wilt bring me to death and to the house appointed, look at it, for all living. Look at Job chapter 34 and verse 15. And listen again as we read, All flesh shall perish together, and man shall turn again unto the dust. It was affirmed to Adam in Genesis 3 and verse 19 that after that sin had entered into the world, that he would return unto dust from whence he had come. And how many of us have not taken the fifth chapter of the book of Genesis and just gone through it, and with one exception, You read three words, and he died. One exception. The Bible affirms death is coming to all. In fact, of Abraham, you read of his death, Genesis 25, 8. You read of the death of Sarah, Genesis 23, 2. You read of the death of Isaac, Genesis 35, 29. You read of the death of Jacob, Genesis 49, 33. But listen to how the Hebrews writer said it in Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. What did he say about them? Three words. These all died. And tonight we could go through Joshua 23, 14, 1 Kings 2, 2. And we could just keep reading through the Bible and we could read over and over and over again an affirmation, a certainty in the Old Testament that man will die. But when we get to the New Testament, the New Covenant, where the greater news is, the New Testament says man will die. Look at Luke chapter 9 with me. And in Luke 9, 30 and 31, listen to what he said. And behold, there talked with him two men who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his, now look at this word, decease, his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Look over to Luke 16 and look at verse 22, a well-known story. And you simply read here, and it came to pass that the beggar died. And we could move through the book of God, but just turn to Romans 5 and look at verse 12. 
And in Romans 5 and 12, remember Paul wrote, Therefore, as through one man sin entered into the world, and three words, death through sin. Now you tie that together with Genesis 2, 16 and 17, where Jehovah said to Adam, Of all the trees of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat thereof, for in the day thou eatest thereof. Now literally, here's the way it reads. Dying thou shalt die. Paul said that's exactly what I go to the Old Testament. Certainty. Man will die. I come to the New Testament. Certainty. Man will die. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed unto man once to die. Now, there are some notable exceptions to that, are there not? Go back to Genesis 5 and go to Hebrews 11:5, and you have Enoch. And Jehovah took Enoch to himself, and he was not, and they searched for him, seems to be the implication in the language, and they could not find him. And then, of course, there's Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2 that did not die, but again was taken by Jehovah. And then there will be those who are alive at the second appearing of Jesus, who will not die in the sense that you and I know death. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 52, we shall not all sleep. That's a euphemism for death. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17, Paul said, When those are brought with the Lord at His second appearing, we who are alive and remain shall together with them be called up to meet the Lord in air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So notable exceptions, but certainty is man shall Die. Now we look at it in context, uh, context from Job's standpoint. No. Look at it in confusion. Well, he ought to. I hope he will. He may. Look at it in certainty. He will die. But then let's look at this question in view of a coming. He shall live. Again, In fact, the Old Testament affirms that man shall live after death. In fact, you don't get out of the first chapter of the book of Genesis until by at least implication you have that affirmation. Since man is made in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it thus logically follows then he has that nature that shall never cease to exist. And if man dies, as far as the body is concerned, he will live again. Now that's reiterated again in Genesis 5 and verse 1, and again in Genesis 9 and verse 6, that man is made in the image of God. And being in the image of God, then he will live again. But when you read about these folks who died, have you ever looked at the language, especially in the book of Genesis, of those who have died and see how that language implies the resurrection. Look at Genesis chapter 15 for illustration. Genesis 15, and look at verse 15. But thou shalt, now if you mark in your Bible, go to thy fathers. 
Now that sounds like you're on a journey, not that you've just ended and don't have anything left. Thou shalt go to thy fathers. Go over to Genesis 25. And in Genesis 25, look at verse 8. And again, notice the language that is there. And Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man, and full, literally, and was, now look at it, gathered to his people. Drop down to verse 17. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, a hundred and thirty and seven years. And he gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people. Go over to Genesis chapter 35. Look at verse 29. And in Genesis 35, 29, And Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people. And then go to Genesis 49. And in Genesis 49 and verse 29, And he charged them and said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. Drop down to verse 33. And when Jacob had made an end of charging his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. That doesn't sound like annihilation. That doesn't sound like a going out of existence. That doesn't sound like an end of ever living. You have a coming that's involved. And he shall live again. So you begin to move through the Old Testament. In fact, Abraham demonstrated the belief that man would live again. What was the, the Hebrews writer's statement in Hebrews 11 verses 8 to 16? About these great worthies, and especially about Abraham, he looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. He couldn't realize that on earth. He's looking for a city that is not on this earth. What are you implying, Abraham? Man shall live again. Now you go to Genesis 22, and Jehovah says, Take Isaac thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. Go over to one of the mountains of Moriah that I will show thee and burn him up. Offer him as a holocaust, a burnt offering. Abraham says, oh no, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'll live through it. Oh, that's the new imagination version, isn't it? The Bible says Abraham got up early in the morning, gathered everything together, took Isaac and everything ready, headed to the mountains of Moriah. Jehovah showed him that mountain. And they start up the mountain. And Isaac says, now, now we have the wood, we have the knife, we have the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, you'd almost see it as a passing reply, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah shall provide himself a sacrifice. And they get on that mountain and Isaac's on the altar. Abraham draws back that knife and one fellow said, had there been an angel standing beside the side of God, he would have said, that old man's going to kill that boy. And you remember the angel of Jehovah said, Stay thy hand. Now I know that you've not withholding even thy son from me. And there's a ram over there in the thicket. Now you go get him and you offer him instead of Isaac. I want to ask every daddy in this assembly tonight, what made a man get up early in the morning to take his only son that he had waited years to receive over to a mountain to offer as a holocaust? Well, I don't have to 
be concerned about it. I go to Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, and the Hebrews writer said, Abraham figured it out in his head. Now, he figured it out wrong, but he figured it out, he thought. And here's what he said. He said, I'm going to take him up to Moriah. I'm going to burn him up as a holocaust offering unto Jehovah God. And Jehovah is going, if you mark in your Bible, he's going to raise him from the dead and give him back to me. What are you believing in there, Abraham? He shall live again. In fact, when you get to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, Jehovah affirmed that man lives after death. And it's interesting. When you get to Mark 12, 26 and 27, that Jesus based his defense of the resurrection on the tense of the grammar of Exodus 3, 6. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the argument depends upon God having worded the statement to convey the idea that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive. Not I was their God, I am. And when you read through the book of John, notice the emphasis on am. And notice here an argument based on the tense of the grammar that implies and conveys these are alive. Didn't David affirm in the Old Testament that there is life after death? In Second Samuel 12 and 23, when that baby died and he said, I cannot bring him to me, but I can go where he is. And you read Psalm 1611, at thy right hand there are joys forevermore. You read Psalm 1715, and you look at the confidence of a coming. I'm going to come out of the grave. I'm not going to cease to exist. I'm going to live. And if we had time tonight, we could look at three Old Testament resurrections that affirm man's living after death. In 1 Kings 17, for example, verses 8 to 24, there is a resurrection from the dead. In 2 Kings 4, who could, who could forget that child being brought back to life? And in 2 Kings 13, 20, and 21, you have a resurrection. What does that imply? Man shall live again. But the teaching of judgment in the Old Testament apply, uh, affirms that man will live again. If you go with me to the 19th chapter of the book of Job, since we're looking at Job tonight, and in Job 19, if you look at verse 26 with me, the text says, Job is saying, But as for me, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Somebody wrote a song about that, didn't they? And at last he will stand up upon the earth, and after my skin, even this body is destroyed. Then, without my flesh, I shall see God. Drop down to verse 29. Be ye afraid of the sword for wrath, the punishments of the sword, that ye may know there is a judgment. In Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 9, and many believe that the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's confession. And you know Solomon had tried it all. 
In Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 9, Solomon said, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thy heart, that's up here, and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Drop down to Ecclesiastes 12 and look at verse 14. For God will bring every work into judgment with every hidden thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. What are you having here? You have an affirmation in the Old Testament that if a man die, he will live. But come to the New Testament. And in the New Testament you have an affirmation that man shall live again after death. The teachings of Jesus assumed it is true, and he continually appealed to a future life, including reward and punishment. Now coming, John 5, 28 and 29. They are going to come forth. That word come forth means to depart, to be discharged, to proceed, to project. They are going to hear his voice and come forth. Now Jesus crowned that thought by raising some from the dead. Matthew 9, 18 to 25, Jesus brought one forth from the dead. And Jesus answered the longing cry of Job 14, 14, If a man die, shall he live? And John 11. And if we had time tonight to cover John 11, remember when he got the word, he said, Lazarus asleep. The disciples misunderstood. They said, well, if he's sleeping, he will awaken. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And he said, I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake, that you're going to believe. And he told the folks that, especially Mary and Martha, when he got there, that this is being done to magnify God. And I'm glad that you're going to get to see it. And he goes there. And remember, Mary and Martha are distraught. They said, Lord, if you'd been here, this never would have happened. And Jesus said, look, everything's going to be all right. And they say, yeah, we know he's going to be raised at the resurrection in the last day. And they go out to that tomb. And remember how long he'd been in there? He'd been there so long that they said, he's decaying. He stinks. You remember what Jesus said? Lazarus. One fellow said if he'd have just said, come forth, everybody in the graveyard would have gotten up. He had to be specific. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Guess what he did? Came forth. What's the implication there? If a man die, he shall live. But he proved it beyond any doubt with his own resurrection. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 10, tied together with 1 Corinthians 15, verses 4 to 8. He would die, the Scripture said He would. He'd be buried, the Scripture said He would. He would be resurrected, the Scripture said He would. And you can go back and see it, and here is the proof of it. And Paul said, those are three of the facts upon which I base the gospel which I preached unto you, which you believed, wherein also you stand, by which also you were saved. That's how powerful. That is. And in Romans 1 4, he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the death. You see, we believe in our own resurrection because we believe in his resurrection. And that's the argument, is it not, 
of 1 Corinthians 15. One writer observed that Jesus never uses any word corresponding to immortality, which simply means unmortal. But he always speaks of life. The continuance of existence is merely an incident in his mind to the fact of life. I thought that was an interesting observation as you begin to look at that. But then you see in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 58, Paul affirmed that man shall live again after death. And who could discount 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 16? These Christians are upset. They've lost loved ones who were Christians. And they want to know, at the second appearing of the Lord, are these folks, because they're dead, going to miss out on what we're going to enjoy? And Paul comes to affirm no, and no, and no. And notice how he talks about death. Those who are fallen asleep. Now what sounds bad about that? I've been trying for years to get our folks to quit being afraid to die. Notice how the Bible talks about death. They are fallen asleep. But this is not just a euphemism for death here. It is an expression of the conviction that physical death is not the end. It's only a sleep from which the Christian will awake. And that's what Jesus shows in John 11, 11 to 14. One poet said it this way, No longer must the mourners weep and call departed Christians dead, for death is hallowed into sleep, and every grave becomes a bed. Now once more Eden's door open stands to mortal eyes. Now at last old things past, Christ is risen. We too shall rise. And it's interesting that our English word cemetery comes from a Greek word which simply means sleeping chamber. Now that just sounds good. And when you can die in the Christ, you're just in the sleeping chamber. And you will arise from the dead. But New Testament resurrections, just like those in the Old Testament, affirm that man lives after death. Remember Matthew 27, 51 to 53, when Jesus died, folks came out of the tomb, didn't they? And went into the city. In Luke 7, 11 through 15, Jesus interrupted a funeral. And someone said Jesus interrupted every funeral he attended. He raised people from the dead. That's interesting. What is he affirming? Man lives after death. There's Lazarus in John 11. You go to Acts 9, 36 to 41. There's Peter. There's Dorcas who has died. What does he do? He raises her from the dead. You go to Acts 20, verses 9 to 12. And Eutychus proves to every member of the church of Christ, you better not go to sleep while the preacher's preaching. And he fell out of that window and he's dead. And Paul goes down and raises him from the dead. And it's interesting, the language there brings him back into the assembly and my, the joy that's there. Paul, what are you affirming? If man dies, he will live again. But then in Matthew 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration, verses 1 to 8, whom do you have there? You have Moses. Had Moses been what we call dead? You have Elijah. He was taken. And where are they? They're back on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus talking about his decease. 
And then in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, the situations of the rich man and Lazarus affirm the fact that after death, man is living. The rich man died and was buried, and in torment he lifted up his eyes. Lazarus was taken by the angels into Abraham's bosom, and there he is, and here are two men who are considered dead engaging in conversation with one another. What are we affirming? If a man dies, he will live. Now, we've looked at it in context. We've looked at it in view of confusion. We've looked at it in view of the certainty that man shall die. And we've looked at it in view of a coming. He shall live again. But tonight I want us to look at this question in view of two concerns. Concern number one tonight, how will you die? How will you die? Now we need to think about that. Will you die unprepared? Like the rich man did in Luke 16, 19 to 31. Look at how he lived. He lived with fine linen. He enjoyed fine living. The text says living in mirth and splendor every day. The margin, the footnote, the American Standard Version. And every phrase that describes the rich man adds something to the luxury he enjoyed. But now how did he die? Luke 16:23 says he died unprepared to live. In Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torments. What's that mean? Ladies and gentlemen, that means he died lost. And Luke 16, 28 and 29 says he died lost because he ignored the word of God when he lived here on this earth. And he did not respect the full all-sufficiency of God's word. He thought something else was needed. He wanted Lazarus to go back to his brothers. And Abraham affirmed the word of God, the confirmed revelation of God is sufficient. If they won't listen to that, they won't listen to anything. The rich man died unprepared. Will you die unsaved as far as we know like Agrippa did? Acts 28 or Acts 25, 13 through Acts 26, 32. Here's a man of great authority. He was an expert in customs and questions among the Jews. He knew the accuracy of what he had heard. He was a man who believed the prophets. He was even a man who was moved by the gospel. He was a man who knew the difference in guilt and innocence. How did he die? We don't know for sure. But we know when we leave him, he's unsaved and separated from fellowship with God. How will I die? Will I die unforgiven like Judas did in Acts 1 verse 25? Here's a man who'd lived as an apostle. He was a treasurer for Jesus. He was one who had even gone with Jesus in days past to the garden where Jesus prayed. But how did he die? He died, Matthew 26, 16 says, receiving what he had sought, and what he had sought after was silver. He died having one of his last questions in life answered by Jesus. Matthew 26, 25. Lord, is it I? He died a leader, but he died a leader of the wrong crowd. Luke 22, 47 and Acts 1, verse 16. And it's interesting that you had 
a robber leading the temple guard out to arrest a man or a thief leading the temple guard out to arrest a man as though he were a robber. And he died. He died having kissed. And the text there literally says having kissed him much. Jesus. He died after Jesus had called him friend. He died giving in to Satan. He died knowing that his sin had found him out. But ladies and gentlemen, he died, Acts one twenty five, unforgiven. Will you die unfaithful like the servant did in Luke 12 and verse 46? He had lived as one who had been placed in a position of authority and opportunity. Here was one who could influence others. In fact, Luke 12, 43 says he controlled his own future. But he died as one who abused his opportunities and his responsibilities, his authority. He died as one who reaped what he sowed. He died as one who knew his Lord's will and did not make ready according to that will. He died as one who failed in meeting that which was required of him. Luke 12:48. But Luke 12:46 says he died unfaithful. Are you unprepared? Are you unsaved? Are you unforgiven? Are you unfaithful? Will you die tonight prepared, saved, forgiven, and faithful? Will you be able to say with Paul, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, The time of my departure is at hand. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the course. Lord, I've been faithful to the faith. I've been faithful in the fight. I've been faithful to the finish. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me in that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that have loved his appearing. Or as John could write in Revelation 2 and 10, some of you are going to be tried, you're going to be cast into prison ten days. Be thou faithful, literally the reading there, until death, the context unto death, and you shall receive the crown of life. You see, the folks who die prepared, saved, forgiven, and faithful have a kingdom prepared for them. Matthew 25, 34 through 46, Jesus said, Enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In view of one great concern tonight, if a man die, shall he live? How will you die? The second concern tonight, where will you live? There's eternal life, heaven, for the righteous. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16, you have individuals 
that can go to heaven. And in Matthew 25, 46, you read, The righteous shall go away into eternal life. If you go through the book of John, you have Jesus, given by God so man could be saved, lifting up, lifted up rather, between heaven and earth so man can be saved, giving himself for mankind so man can be saved. And the free gift of God is eternal life. You read so vividly in Romans 6, verses 22 and 23. But then there's hell for the unrighteous. Matthew 25, 46, These shall go away into never-ending, ever-burning, never-quenching, eternal punishment. Those who... No, not God, because they've not come to study His Word. They've not come to learn that Jesus Christ is God's Son. And if they can come to believe that, John 8, 24 implies they will not die in their sins. They've never come to change their mind about living in sin on purpose, that the Bible calls repentance, and God commands of all men everywhere, Acts 17, 30, and 31. They've never come to confess with their lips, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, as did the eunuch in Acts 8 and 37, and of which Paul says, this is a confession unto salvation, Romans 10, 9 and 10. They've never come to be buried in water so the blood of Jesus Christ can wash their sins away, Acts 22, verse 16. They've never been raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4, as a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and enjoyed living like a new man, Colossians 3, 5 to 17. And because of weakness and immaturity when they sinned, they never repented and asked God's forgiveness, Acts 8, 22 to 24, and enjoyed the assurance of that restoration, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 10, 9 and 10. They've never been brought back into fellowship by the blood of the Christ, 1 John 1, 7. They have not kept on in that walk of the light that's in the light where God is, 1 John 1, 5 and 7. And now they die. Knowing not God, Obeying not the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they shall suffer eternal, everlasting separation from the face of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Second Thessalonians 1, verses 7 to 9. If a man die, shall he live? Job's thought was never again on the earth, and he was right about that. Before the book ends, he comes seemingly to have a greater understanding and appreciation that yes, he will die, he will live. The confusion of science and philosophy and ethics says, can't help you. The certainty is you're going to die unless you're alive when the Lord returns. But you have a coming. You're going, if you're dead, to come forth from the grave. If you're alive, you're going to be changed momentarily. 
But ladies and gentlemen, the concern is, how will you die? Where will you live while we stand and encourage?